All right, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're actually going to begin reading at the end of chapter 12, verse 27 through 31. Uh, and you'll understand why, because it literally leads right in to um, uh, chapter 13. But the title of our message is The Most Excellent Way, as you'll see introduced in the last verse of chapter 12. Uh, now, I want to just say this up front. You've probably heard me say some of the things I'm going to say tonight before, but I promise you I don't reuse or recycle sermons. Not Nothing wrong with reusing or recycling sermons. The best people do. I I bring, I put new notes together every time, and I, I put a new sermon together every time we get to these texts that are very similar. So if it sounds like a sermon you've heard before, maybe it's because we need to hear it more than once, right? Uh, but I just say that because we're going to be talking about something we've talked about a whole, whole lot here. And, and I hope, I hope at the end of my ministry, whether it's tomorrow or 100 years from now or somewhere in between, I hope at the end of my ministry, if I'm known for one thing, it's, it's, it's preaching this sermon well. Uh, because I don't think that, uh, I don't think anything else matters, really, when it comes to preaching and teaching God's word. Uh, that's my opinion, and, and I think it's pretty in line with the scripture. Um, but we're going uh, to have a good time tonight, and I think you're all going to um, say amen to most of this and, and maybe be challenged by some of this, but most of all, I think we're all going to be, um, we're all going to come together around the calling that God has for all of us. Um, so I think we all can agree that chapter 12, we spent three weeks in it, so it I think it, it must have been important. I think we all can agree that chapter 12 is a milestone passage in defining the church and directing the church, uh, whether, regardless of whether it was 2,000 years ago or today. Uh, it continues to ground us and guide us. Uh, the one, on one hand, we, detailed, we had this detailed list of the spiritual gifts uh, that God wants to impart to every believer, that he opens the door for us to see uh, how, how God wants to uh, transform our lives as Christians. Uh, clearly, uh, as we read, uh, as we studied, it, God wants to give us these gifts. Uh, he, he talks about the transformation that he wants to have over our lives as a whole. Um, and, and we learn that these gifts are not tools in a toolbox. As in these gifts aren't something that we just kind of pick up as we need them or we kind of go to and pull them out of a drawer whenever we think about them. But these gifts kind of become part of who we are as Christians. They become part, an extension of our walk with God or, or as we put it, an overflow of our walk with God. So if we are going to be gifted Christians, uh, here's, what it here's what I mean. We've got to have a lifestyle of following Jesus. That We're not going to be gifted and you're not going to realize your gift as a Christian, your calling as a Christian, the way that you can serve God in the church and as a part of the church, you're never going to arrive at that place if Christianity is just a category to you. And we've talked about this on Sunday morning recently, right? That Christianity has to be a lifestyle if we're going to walk in the fullness of it as chapter 12 offers us. When he talks about the spiritual gifts, he's literally just saying, this is your new nature. And if you are walking in the spirit, if you are following Jesus like you should, this should just be the overflow uh, of your walk with God. Now, if all these things sounded foreign to you and and I don't think they would for you folks that are here on a Wednesday evening, but again, not to be judgmental, to be, to just to be honest and in, invite you all. If these things sound foreign to you, I think the first step for you is just start following Jesus as close as you can. Start pursuing him with all of your heart. Start asking him to fill you with his spirit and start asking him to show you how he can be involved in your life daily, not just weekly or not just a couple times a day when you think about him, but every moment of every day because that's his goal for every Christian. Uh, the, the point is, it's not about flipping a switch, but rather it becomes an extension of who we are 
spiritually. But the one thing I know, and the one thing I think you know, when you study the things of the Spirit and you study what it means to walk in the Spirit, they don't really sound normal, or they don't sound like normal human nature, and that's exactly right. Uh, But as we are empowered by the Spirit, we are not just normal humans anymore, right? We have the supernatural feeling of God in us, so it makes us different, right? Not weird or abstract or strange, even though the world might think we are, but it makes us different. It makes us able to follow the Lord and able to see the gifts that he wants to give us and the ways he wants to use us. Now, for these spiritual gifts to even mean to make sense to us, we must first be spiritually minded. We must first be transformed by God's presence and power, and again, that is not something that happens if we are just casually following Jesus or a fan of Jesus. It happens when we super are devoted to him. Now, Paul, when he introduces these gifts to us, he is not worried that the Corinthians are not going to get these gifts because the Corinthians are super enthused about these gifts. But it's kind of gotten out of control at the Corinthian church. And and let me explain what I mean. Uh, If we're not careful, um, as we talk about the gifts and who's gifted and who's holy and who's got it, who's got the spirit more than others, it, it's easy for the church to get swept up in. And, and this is not something that we struggle with. And, not that, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't struggle with it, but sometimes I think some people go too far in it. But it, it's easy to get caught up in what I call charismania. Now, I, I'm not taking shots at the charismatic movement. Um, I'm not part of it, right? I don't, I don't preach that, but, but I'm not trying to take shots at them. Um, the word charis does not belong to any denomination. The word charis, the first part of that, that, that top word, it's just the Greek word for grace. It's the Greek word for gift. So every one of you are gifted, right? The charismatic movement is not the only people in, only group of the, in the church that believes in the spiritual gifts. They just really talk a lot about it, and they really make a big deal about it as if, hey, if you don't have these certain gifts, then you aren't really a Christian. As we've studied in Corinthians, Paul says that the Spirit of God's in every Christian's heart, yet as we follow him, we should be developing these traits and these characteristics and these gifts of the Spirit in in different ways that they show up in our lives. But it's easy, Paul is worried about the Corinthians, and it's easy if we get so obsessed with these, these gifts that are really only mentioned in one chapter, it's easy for us to become so focused and obsessed on, well, you know, am I gifted? Am I more gifted than you? And, and hey, I've got these gifts and you don't have those gifts. And it becomes a little, a little bit of self-exaltation. Or it becomes, in uh, certain threads of the church, become so obsessed with the gifts that, that the gifts become a means of self-promotion. Uh, whether they say it out loud or not, uh, it stems from this fascination with power and glory and self-promotion and, and this fascination with the ethereal, as in, hey, you know, look at what I can do, or look at what God is doing in me, and, and it kind of becomes a, a me versus you, and a us versus them, and a, and a show and tell kind of thing, uh, which is exactly what Paul's worried about in chapter 12. He informs us and reminds us that the spiritual gifts are not meant to create a competitive atmosphere within the church, but rather they're given to build up and edify the body of Christ. And here's what Paul's worried about. Not worried as in stress, but he's what he's concerned about. Paul knows, and what he's been fighting this entire book, Paul knows the way of all religion is division and self-righteousness. The way, and even, this, even super spiritual places are still susceptible to this religious 
tendency and this religious temptation. The way of all religion, and religion really is fueled by dividing people up and one person being more righteous than another. And, and, and that's really the way religion's always been. Religion has been driven by insecurity and fear from the very beginning. Religion is built on this idea that one person is only as justified as they can marginalize someone else. And, and if you want to know, and again, I'm not, I'm not tranking the shot at any person, anybody in particular, but if you want to know why certain religious people, and, and I'm talking about Christian people, right, who become more religious than they are about Jesus, if you want to know why people get very passionate about, hey, I'm right and you're wrong, it's because they are justifying themselves by what they do. And the reason why they're so worried about justifying themselves is because they're only as justified as they can marginalize other people. Because the more I can push you off to the side, the more I'm in the center by myself. And if I'm in the center by myself, Look at me, I'm better than you, right? And that's what religion's all about. Hey, look at me, self-exaltation, self-promotion. Hey, I'm this and you're not this. It marginalizes others so that the individual is justified. And, and, and you know why I think this is, is, is something uh, that we should pay a lot of attention to? It's all over the Bible. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Think about it. When Adam knew he was condemned, what was his first move? He attempted to justify himself by blaming Eve, right? When, when, and when Adam knew he was guilty, when God called him right-handed, what did he do? Well, well yeah, well, I, I know, I know I did it, but she did it first. So I'm not as guilty as her, right? So what did Adam do? Adam attempted to justify himself by pushing Eve to the margins. And then when Eve was caught red-handed, well, well, well I, I, I know I did it, but the serpent is the one that, made me do it. So again, she attempted to justify herself by pushing the serpent to the margin. And of course he was guilty. So don't you see from the very beginning, what was the nature of mankind in response to being guilty? Try to find some leg to stand on, even if it meant knocking somebody else down, which is exactly what happens in chapter four, right, of Genesis. When Cain and Abel are competing with God or competing with each other, Abel's just wanting to bring an offering to the Lord as a lamb as he was taught. But Cain says, hey, look at what I've grown. Look at what I've done. I've, earned, I've built this. I've grown this. I've earned this. God, you should recognize me over him. And God said, I'm not impressed. So then what did Cain do? He killed him, Right? Can't say he's better than me when he's dead, right? Literally, that's what religion does. Religion cuts people down so that you can stand on their backs to look as if they are holier than someone else. Now, again, that's what religion does. I'm, that's not what I do or you do necessarily because we're just evil or maniacal. It's just what we do because we're scared deep down. We're scared and insecure and we're so nervous that we're not justified. And of course we're not, but we know how to be justified, but not by our own works. Paul does not want the church to just become another religious community, another religious-minded group that is still worried about, hey, look at what I've done. It's all about Jesus, right? Jesus justifies all of us, but the church was trying to turn it into this, well, I've got this gift, you've got those gifts, so somewhere down the road, we've got to start dividing each other up and start comparing each other and contrasting each other, and we've got to start ranking people because we, we're all trying to earn our way. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We've already earned our way because God's given it to us. Don't let, the, don't let the devil tear apart what God is trying to bring together with these gifts. Uh, now, 
I'm not smarter than anybody for bringing this stuff out. I just want to bring this up because it's easy to miss and it's easy to misread. Paul knows the same mentality was going to creep into the church and attempt to corrupt the ways that God was wanting to build the church up and unify the church by turning the work he was doing within the people into a point of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. And listen, don't you think Satan loves to infiltrate the church and corrupt the work of the Spirit by turning everything in on itself? Of course he does. He's very active in doing this. And here's, here's, here's how he does it. We all have this fear and this, in, this inferiority complex, and he, he makes us reactionary and combative when it seems like somebody else is better than us or doing better than us, or maybe they're doing worse than us, and it's a chance for us to kind of push our chest out a little bit. Paul reminds us the gifts of the Spirit are meant to unite us in really all the works of the Spirit. All Christian activity and fellowship should, be, should, should cause us to think about how God's wanting to unite us and strengthen us as a group, as a unit, as a community. But, but as with all religion, when we're talking about giftedness and accomplishments, when we're moving closer to holiness, and I'm going to put holiness in quotes, not because I'm trying to say that it's not a real thing, but we, we might think, well, I'm pretty holy because I'm gifted, right? And, and this is the downfall of a lot of people like me who wear microphones like me because they're so, they, they believe they're gifted and they ignore the fact that they're, they're not living like they should. But even though they're gifted, they have these gaps in their, their walk with God. And that's all of us, right? We might be gifted. Uh, we might have these accomplishments as we follow the Lord and, hey, we've, we've given this much and we've done this much and we've served this much. And, hey, look at my record. Look at my, look at my report card. Did you see all the stuff I've done for Jesus? And, hey, good on you, right? We should do all that stuff for Jesus. But the, the closer we move to holiness, here's what Paul's worried about in the church. And, and again, I think, he should be, I think we should be concerned about it because Paul was concerned about it 2,000 years ago. Paul's concerned that the closer we move to what we consider holy, that the closer we move as we contribute to, in, into the kingdom of God with our gifts and our accomplishments, he says that holiness can make us hard-hearted if, if it's not tethered to this one thing. He's not saying holiness isn't the goal. It is the goal. We all should be trying to get holy, to become holier, to become more righteous, to become more like Jesus. We all should be striving toward being gifted and being accomplished and doing good works. Don't mishear me. But Paul's saying if we don't tether holiness to this one thing, we risk becoming hard-hearted and it all being for nothing. Those aren't my words. Case in point, Jesus. Can you get any more holy than Jesus? No, right? Can you find anybody with a heart that was more open and more understanding and gracious than Jesus, though? No. That's what drove the Pharisees and religious leaders crazy about Jesus. And even us, have you ever heard somebody say, have you ever said, when somebody says, well, what did Jesus do? And you say, whoa, whoa, I'm not Jesus. I mean, don't expect me to act or respond or do what Jesus did. I'm not him. And I know, y'all know what I'm talking about. Well, Jesus did this. Whoa, whoa, I'm not Jesus. Jesus was God in a body. He was holiness with hands, but he was also something else. And Paul reminds us in chapter 12, going into 13, that if we aim for holiness and if we project holiness without this one thing that Jesus was most about, we, we risk jumping the shark on Christianity entirely. 
So look with me at verse 27 through 31 as Paul leads us into this such an important chapter. Now you are the body of Christ, members individually, and God has appointed these in the church. First the apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And, and he asked these important questions. Are all apostles? And I'm going to answer the questions for him. They're rhetorical, but they're all meant to be answered this one way. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But I earnestly desire, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more or the most excellent way. He says, all the gifts I've been talking about that everybody's trying to say, trying to figure out which ones are more important and who's better or who's more holy and who's more gifted and who, you know, who do we need to respect the most. Paul says, not everybody's going to have every gift, but there is one gift. Not really a gift. It's a trait. It's an attitude. It's a feeling. There is one thing that every Christian must have. He tells us, all Christians receive some gift, but no Christian receives all of them. And let me kind of break this down for you in, in, in another way. All Christians are working towards holiness, but no Christian has arrived at complete holiness. So Paul's trying to say, you know, you're trying to, people are trying to say, well, you know, this gift is more important than that gift, and this work is more important than that work, and this deed is more important than that work, and these people are more holy than these people. Paul says, hey, hey, we're all working towards holiness, but nobody has arrived at complete perfection, but there is one way we can all guarantee that we're doing everything we should be doing. But think about that for a minute. All Christians are working towards holiness, but no Christian has arrived at perfection. We're all a work in progress, aren't we? We may be good at projecting our strengths, but we're also good at hiding our weaknesses, aren't we? Right? I mean, be honest, right? I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm really good at projecting my strength. I, w I wouldn't get up here if I wasn't prepared to do it, right? I'm good at projecting, hey, my gift or my strength, but I'm really good at hiding my weaknesses. I think you are too. Come on, think about how, how when they caught the woman caught in adultery, naked and ashamed. According to the law, worthy of death, be the most humiliating and excruciating public sentences. So what did they do to that woman? They drug her to the temple mount early one morning. As the light shined on that gold-coated limestone, the temple literally it lit up Mount Zion as a glorious light. They called it the light of the world because of that. The bright light shined on those religious leaders as they stood in authority and were set to justifiably with a Bible verse in their hand. They were said to justifiably bring the hammer down on this adulterous woman. And nobody would have said they were wrong for doing it. Except Jesus came to the Temple Mount that morning. He made his way up the mountain, and the Pharisees were licking their chops. They were so glad he came that morning. Because finally they would get Jesus to take their side. Because certainly Jesus wasn't going to say the Bible was not true. Certainly he wasn't going to say that Leviticus did not say to do what they were about to do. Or that Numbers or Deuteronomy did not say what they were about to do was the right thing to do. So finally, see Jesus was always this man of the people. He was always this friend of sinners. But, but he couldn't wiggle out of this one. 
If he was going to stand on God's side, he was going to have to say, yep, this woman must be stoned. So they're gloating, they're boasting, and Jesus kneels down and begins scribbling on the ground while they're talking. And, and maybe at first they thought he doesn't know what to do. He's, 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 he's squirming. Maybe at first they were groveling over him. Oh, look at him. He, he doesn't want to admit that we're right. He doesn't want to you know, all of a sudden break his trust with the sinners because finally he's going to have to take our side. No more friend of sinners for Jesus. Because once he says stoner, they aren't going to want anything to do with him. He can't oppose God's law on the very temple mount. And they badgered him again and again, completely turning from the woman. They aren't even worried about the woman anymore at that point. They're just wanting Jesus to admit they're right because they want their egos to be stroked because that's what religion does, right? But remember how the text, what the text tells us? As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He says, hey, hey, I know what the Bible says. I know what the law says. So he says, okay, let's, let's just figure, let's do this. Which of y'all, which of y'all is sinless that gives you the authority to stone this woman? And they're all thinking, what? What, what kind of question is that? And he bends back down and he begins writing on the ground. Jesus doesn't say the law, doesn't say what it says, because it does indeed say that. Listen, there's, there's a verse in Numbers 15 that says, if you pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, you should be stoned. And they literally stone a guy who picks up some sticks. The finger of God wrote those laws. But now the finger of God was writing on the temple mount. And as he kept writing, as they heard it, what, what did they hear? Maybe they heard Jesus's finger writing something on the ground that we don't know what it says, but they must have. And as they heard it, and as they heard him ask that question, he that is without sin cast the first stone. They went away one by one, beginning with the older one, because the older ones had sinned more, right? Because they'd been alive longer. <laughs> one by one, they went away. And Jesus was left alone with the sinful woman. Suddenly, all the Pharisees, aware that judgment wasn't just coming to those caught in their sin, but judgment was coming to those who concealed their sin as well. Do you, get, you hear me? Judgment isn't just coming to those that get caught. Judgment is coming to everyone. Because whether we're good at hiding our sin or not, we still got it. So then Jesus turns to the woman. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And, and she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go from, and from now on, sin no more. So, so which is it, Jesus? You don't condemn her, but you're also telling her to leave her life of sin? Yes, it's both. You see, this is the balance that Jesus embodied and put out into the world. This is why in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. That if you don't follow me, you're in complete darkness. Jesus had this uncanny ability to not condemn someone, but also to look them in the eyes and tell them that they're killing themselves. They're condemning themselves if they don't leave that sin behind. But he did not throw the stone, even though he had the authority 
to do so. So in verse 31, Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. More excellent than this self-glorification game that the church has fallen into that is not Christianity. The way is not a coincidence here. The way is what Christianity was referred to in its early years, named after the path that Jesus paved. And, And here's the whole point of this. Unless we're following Jesus in this excellent way, we won't make the impact that he did on the world. In a messy world, in a world where there are sinners of all kinds, church, our light has got to shine and it's got to be bright and it's got to be right. Because if we're going to reach people, we've got to make sure we're walking in the way of our faith. Yeah, we need to be holy. We have, no, there's no excuse. We better be holy. We better be perfecting our faith, obeying God's word. No question, we ought to be shining like lights and be pure in doing so. But we also have to have something else and do that effectively the way that Jesus did it. Our lights don't shine to make everyone wince or blind with judgment. We shine our lights to make hearts melt and feel acceptance that only God can give, to feel like they can be free from sin and they can be free from shame. Paul says, nobody is gonna win anybody to God if we're all arguing over who's more holy than others and making a competition out of this all. That's not the way of Jesus because that way leads to religion and that way leads to self-righteousness and that way leads to pride and that way leads to arrogance and that way leads to judgment and that way doesn't lead to anybody getting saved but just everybody throwing rocks at everybody. But he says, I'll tell you the more excellent way. Chapter 13, one through seven. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Charity is King James. Love is is the the word uh, that most Bibles use. But again, if I do not have charity, which is this rich, certain kind of love that we'll talk about. I have become a symbol, a sounding brass, a clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. No matter how gifted, no matter how smart, no matter how right, No matter how holy we act or holy we are, if we do not love, we've lost our way. You know how easy it is to lose our way when it comes to religion? Very easy. Because it's tempting to forget that we we needed Jesus to make a way for us to even know the way. Listen, Satan is a professional at what I call holy hijacking our faith, cheering on certain things while draining the very soul of what we are supposed to be. Now, I want you to turn back with me, bookmark this. I want you to turn back with me to Matthew 5. I want to walk you through a couple of passages, mainly for you to bookmark and read on your own. You probably know these passages, but I want you to see them. Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48 
And while you find that place, I want to just say this. You know why we talk about this all the time? You know why every other page in the New Testament seems to talk about this all the time? Because we are so prone to wonder from the way of love, and there's no other way but this one. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you how Jesus himself set this in motion. I want to define what love is and what it's not, and then we're going to wrap up. So we saw Jesus embodied both holiness and love, the ability to divide what's right and wrong so clearly, but extend grace and speak to the heart of sinners so steeped in unrighteousness. Jesus rocked the world when he came on the scene and he preached this message at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything up until this point, they all agreed with. But then he says this in verse 43 of chapter five. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. And notice that's in quotations or that's italics. And then he says, and hate your enemy. And it was just assumed, well, I don't have to love anybody who's not my neighbor. And my neighbor is really the only person that they're either living next to me or there's someone that looks like me and sounds like me and agrees with me. It was a good, it was a lot of good ways you could get out of saying somebody was your neighbor. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, you can love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. So then he, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean to love people? Well, he gives some, put some legs on it. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So, hey, you don't just say, well, I love you. He says, no, I want you to bless them and do good to them and pray for them. And again, people are thinking, Jesus, nobody does this. No one is ever going to do this. He says, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward of you? And do not even the tax collectors do the same? He says, hey, I want y'all to be different. I don't want y'all just to be like every other person in the world. I want us to stand out. And how are we going to stand out? Or according to Jesus, how should we stand out? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collector do so? And that really burned them up when he compared them to tax collectors. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know what he just said there? Our perfection, our holiness is not measured in how good we are, but how loving we are. That really destroys our religious brains, doesn't it? Because religion says, well, it's about how good I am, how much I've kept the law, and Jesus is not in my kingdom. It's about how loving you are. Make no mistake, Jesus was perfect in word and deed. He never sinned. He never broke God's law, but not because he aimed to keep or never break one. But he was driven by love, and he introduces a brand new mindset. He was introducing the world, and it's what we talk about here all the time. This is what sets Christianity apart from religion. Flip over to chapter 22, just a few pages. 22, you probably have these verses either highlighted or underlined or starred, or if you don't, you should. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus is bold enough to say, and again, don't don't throw rocks at me. Jesus is bold enough to say that you could sum up the entire law of God, 600 commandments, 618. Jesus is bold enough to say this in verse 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it as in the other side of the coin. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Again, I didn't write that. Jesus did. 
The same finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments is writing this. You can sum it all up. I know we've said this before, but it really bears repeating. If we love God and we love each other with respect to the image that they are made in, we will not sin against God. We will not sin against others. We will not sin with others. You hear me? If we love God, we won't sin against God. If we love others, we won't sin with them, even if they're consensual, right? Because we know better. We won't sin with or against them. So that's why Jesus was confident in reducing it all down to two simple commandments because this required everyone consider everything they do in such a serious and sacred way. But he didn't start there. Jesus didn't just use love as the driving force to stop sin. He used love as the driving force to obtain true and full life. Yet he defined true and full life in the most unexpected of ways. He taught and modeled the most fulfilled life is found through sacrifice, found through service. Now, now we don't need to repeat what we've talked about before so often. Jesus came, introduced a new way. He gave, he served, he eventually died on the cross to show the new way. This is where God's heart at. This is where the spirit of God is at and leading us to. How do we know that this is the way? Keep turning with me forward to John 10. If you're going forward uh, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 10, another verse that you probably know very well. You probably got it highlighted. Here's how we know that Jesus, that the, the way to a fulfilled life is the way of love. Two verses I'll give you. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have life more abundantly. So Jesus says, hey, if you want full and abundant life, you've got to follow me. The same Jesus that said that, just a few days later, sits down at a meal with his disciples, washes their feet, says, I'm going to literally lay my life down for you. I'm going to die for you. And the way I've just modeled my love through this foot washing is the way that you should live your everyday life in service to each other. So Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. And, and then in John 13, verse 34 and 35, just a few pages over, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love for, have love for one another. So Jesus says, I've come to give you life. And then he says, the one thing that's gonna make you stand out as mine is if you love one another. So what does abundant life look like? Loving each other. People turn that, prosperity, turn that into prosperity gospel. Oh, abundant life means I'm rich and happy and healthy and blessed. That's not abundant life. Abundant life is living like Jesus and loving it. So if you follow Jesus, you know what Jesus did for you and you know what you've got to do for him and for everyone else. You love one another as I have loved you. Flip back over to Corinthians and we'll wrap up, but... This tells us what kind of love Jesus is talking about. Agape love. Sacrificial, unconditional love. Love that has one agenda, reveal God's heart to every soul. And let me just explain this love to you. Paul's already done it, but let me just break it down for you. This love is not arrogant so as to always have to be right. 
You know what that's like, right? We can't lose an argument. We always got to win, win, win because I'm right, you're wrong. This love is not worried about that. This love is not arrogant. This love is not aggressive or impatient, demanding others to get up to our speed at our time on our schedule. This love is not vindictive, always remembering everything people have done wrong to us or to God or to everybody else. This love is not leveraging fault against others, never forgetting what people have done wrong. This love is not hateful, insisting on everybody always getting everything right. This love is, as Paul has described it, this love is patient, this love is kind, this love is not jealous, it is not boastful, it is not puffed up, it is not rude, it is not selfish, it is not easily provoked, it is not evil-minded, it is not sinful, it is hopeful, and it bears all things and believes all things and endures all things. This love is agape, sacrificial, unconditional. Jesus says, you'll be known by this love. Now, let me just say this. Christians are known for a lot of things. You know, we say, well, you know, Baptists are known for this. Evangelicals are known for this. Charismatics are known for this. You know, people, uh, other denominations that, we, you know, we really look down on, they're known for this. L listen, I don't care what people say I'm known for and you're known for, and I don't care about that stuff. Jesus says, they'll only know you the way I want them to know you, the way God acknowledges if you love them like God has loved you. Well, I don't care what people think they're known for and should be known for. I don't care about all that stuff. Jesus said, if you want to be known the way God wants you to be known, if you want to be acknowledged by God as doing it right, this is the way. So let me ask you a question as we, as we close. Church, what do we want to be known for? How, do we want to be known for being gifted, for being able and, and, and accomplishing a lot of things? Do we want to be known for how right we are, how holy we are, how much we've given and how much we've contributed? Do, do, do we want people to know us for that? I'm not trying to make you feel bad if that's what you want to be known for, if that's how you've been raised or taught in the church, right? Jesus says God is not impressed by any of that. Sinners' hearts will never be moved by any of those things. In a world, we face all kind of pressures. People say, what do, you, what, you know, what do you stand for? People ask me all the time as a pastor, as a preacher. Hey, what do you stand for? What are you against? Or what do you really preach against? Or what do you really... Listen, you know, my response is, and I don't care what people say about me. I don't care if it never, you know, whatever, however it ranks me in the world of, of preachers and churches. But I, I don't know. I don't know what you stand for, but I know what Jesus died for. So when somebody is pressing you on, hey, what do you stand for? And hey, what are you against? And, you know, are you really passionate about those sins? And, you know, listen, that's fine. You know, politically and socially, whatever, that's fine. Listen, I believe the Bible. I believe everything the Bible says is true. And I believe, I'm for everything it's for. I'm against everything it's against. But here's what I know. I know what Jesus died for. I know who he died for. I know why he died. And Jesus was content letting that do all the talking. So you know why Paul said in, in verses one through three, if I can speak in all the tongues of man and angels, if I have every gift of prophecy, if I know everything that I can know, if I can have all the knowledge, if I have all the faith, if I do all the miracles, if I give all the good, if I feed all the... You know why Paul would say, hey, if I am known for all of these great works and good knowledge and all these good things... <laughs> but if I don't love, it's all a waste. 
listen, I used to want to be known for all these sorts of things as a preacher, and you know, I want people to I want people to know that I know this, and I want listen, you know, and, and I think it speaks for itself what I know and what I preach and all that stuff. But that, that, listen, I've I've given up all that because what we should be known for is how well did we love each other? Our gifts, our abilities, our reactions, our beliefs, our our beliefs, actions, and reactions must always be prepared and presented through love. If they're not, we risk wasting them. You say, why doesn't God take care of all that when he equips people? Why is he, you know, how can somebody, you say, how can somebody possibly preach and have these gifts and do all these good things and God not, and there not be loving them? That, That tells me that God's put it on our shoulders to get this right. I've heard people brag about being everything but loving and they think they're fine. They're so right and they're so, you know, they've done all this good stuff and they've given all this stuff and they've, you know, know all this stuff. Listen, that's fine. God is so gracious to give those gifts to people, but he still lets it be on our shoulders if we're going to do it the right way. Do you see that? He gives you knowledge and he gives you gifts and he gives you the ability to do good things because it's still up to you. How are you going to do it? God blesses every one of us a mess. He gives us all a gift. And it's on us to continue pursuing and relying on him to give him the maximum glory and do the maximum good. It requires that we take serious, prayerful consideration with every thought, word, and move. Am I communicating God's love with the gift or with the action, with the thing that I'm doing? So here's what I know. Love cares deeply. Love gives completely. And love endures passionately. If you want to summarize four through seven, that's the best way I can do it. Love cares deeply. Love gives completely. And love endures passionately. As in with people. And love is willing to take the time to figure out how to win someone to God. Not win by the world's metrics. Not, oh, good on you, you won. Or, or, hey, you know, we beat them. Love is not worried about winning but the way the world counts winning. Love wants to win people to God because it can't stand losing someone forever. People say, Justin, what about sin? Of course sin matters. Of course sin's a big deal. People are going to hell if they don't know Jesus, which is why we've got to love people. Because they could have stolen that woman on the Temple Mount and she would have went to hell and they would have been right. And they would have felt good about themselves, wouldn't they? That's where, that's where that when people ask me, Justin, you know, what defines you as a pastor? I always go back to that. They could have stoned her. She would have went to hell. I'm not saying she wouldn't. She would have been lost. She would have went to hell. And they would have been right. And God would have been against them just as he was against her. You say, were they lost? Yes, they were lost. Just because they could quote the Bible didn't make them any more saved than her. They were just using it as a weapon. And that's why Jesus came, to save both sides, to save the people that thought that they were right and to save the people that he knew were wrong and that they knew were wrong. Paul says we can be the best preachers, we can be the greatest workers of wonders, we can be right and holy, we can do so many good works, but if we don't love, we've lost our way. And we've lost the way. We gain nothing even if we look like religion has told us to look. So what should we take away from this? If we aren't loving, nobody is winning. Not us, not the church, not the lost person across from us. Listen, we can choose another way and we may win, the church may win, they may win, but not all three. 
The answer isn't to go scorched earth on all sinners and all sin. The answer isn't to affirm and apologize all sin and all sinners. It's, a, it's, it's messy, it's complicated, but it's the way that Jesus did it. It's the way of love. It's the way that causes us to roll our sleeves up and say, how can we do this the way that God told us to do it? It's not easy. It's not easy. That's willing to do, love that's willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that Christianity isn't just known as a holiness competition. It isn't known as a who's right debate. It isn't known as how good we are versus them. Also, it isn't known as something that just lowers the standards and says, I don't care what the Bible says. It, 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 it's none of those things. It all comes down to loving people like God loves people. Patient, kind, humble, gentle, forgiving, joyful, pure, righteous, positive, hopeful, persistent, sacrificial, unconditional, agape love. Is this easy? No, it's not easy. We should all be staying up all night praying how to get this right. It's not easy. It's stressful. It's complicated. It's, it's overwhelming. But it's the only way people get saved. First Corinthians 13, verse eight says, love never fails. Prophecies fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish away. Our sermons will end, our good works will end, our knowledge will end, but love never ends. Only love promises us eternity. You might say, it's a lot of, lot of sermon for just a Wednesday night. Yeah, I know. But I didn't write the book, so I got to preach whatever it comes up. God so loved us that Jesus died for us. We are called to love so that all might live through him. What's on the line, church? A lot is, right? A lot's on the line. But it's worth, it's worth the blood, sweat, and tears. It's worth the love to do it the way God called us to do it. We'll get into more of this next week, but until then, think about how God so loved us and think about how we can love others. Not giving up on them, not giving in to them, but staying on our knees just like Jesus did, even willing to go to the cross to see people get saved. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your graciousness. Lord, thank you for being so loving when we are so undeserving. Lord, it just, it dawns on me as a preacher, I, I hear Paul say, you can have all the knowledge and you can preach all the sermons, you can do all the good, and if you don't love people, you're wasting your time. So Lord, it speaks to me more than it speaks to anybody else in this room that it's not about how good you preach or how much you give or how professional you are, it's about how good you are at loving other people. So Lord, would you melt every one of our hearts so that we might learn how to love people so that they might have their hearts melted by the love that you bring through us and into them. Lord, help us to take this serious, Lord, and as tempting as it is to take another way and do it another way and take another approach, Jesus says there is only one way in a world that wants everybody to take a side and, and take a stand. Lord, let us be most moved by the fact that Jesus died to save and he gave up his life to show us that this is the way. Love one another. And if we don't have love, we're wasting our lives. Lord, in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen.